Now, back in the day, I would play video games with my sons. I, I stopped playing because they're better than me, okay? I'll, I'll be honest, I'll admit, I don't like losing. So, and then there's too many buttons. Um, back in the day when there was that pong, and you just took the thing up and down and hit the ball, that was really something. Now there's X's and O's and A's and B's and W's and XYZ's and all kinds of stuff. And it's, I don't know what to push. And, but when I did play video games with the kids, there was one game I really enjoyed because I always wanted to get better. Beat the level, advance to the next level. Beat that level, advance to the next level. You know what I'm saying? You just you keep advancing, you keep winning, you keep going. And it's like there's always the next level. And I thought about this. What else in life is like that? Now, I, w- I was going to ask Tina Mueller this, and I didn't have a chance to ask her, so I did some research. I wanted to find out, and I probably could ask Cole Calvin this as well, um, to become a black belt in martial arts, how many levels do you have to go through? And I thought there's like so many colors, right? Well, as I was reading, trying to figure this out, I discovered that the number of belts and levels to become a black belt, I believe, was around nine, but it, then it's like, well, there could be up to 15. It's like, so which one is it? Because there's a color, but then you could put a black stripe in that color and so forth and so on. And I'm probably way off, but, you know, that's why I was like, I need to ask one of those experts. But then here's what I found out is that when you become a black belt, then there's 10 levels of a black belt. And I think, what? There's even more? I mean, to be this expert, there's so many levels. And I admit, it was confusing just trying to figure it out. Then I thought about this. The same can be said of Christianity. I think some of us are confused at times thinking, when I give my life to Jesus Christ, as it says in the Bible, when I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I'm saved. That's level one, right? And there's like carnal Christianity where I'm a Christian, but I still sin a lot. And, you know, I'm just learning the ropes here. And then there's a next level where I'm not sinning as much, but I'm a better. And then there's the, well, I'm following Jesus Christ, but I'm not quite disciple yet. Okay. And then I'm a disciple of Jesus. And it's like, okay, who came up with all those? I don't remember reading those in the Bible. Right. But somewhere along the line in life, people start categorizing their faith and their levels of spiritual growth. And it's like, that's just confusing to me. Are there really stages? So then I'm reading through the Bible more and discovering that no. It's actually sort of simple, but we've complicated it. We tend to do that, right? So open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Romans. We've been studying Romans. Romans chapter 8. And if you're in the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get to Acts and then Romans, sixth book in. If you need a Bible, by the way, we've got them in the back. Raise your hand. We'll bring one to you if you need one, but the book of Romans, chapter 8. And as we've been studying this, going through this book, there's been some incredible, I will call it the radical response to grace is really what I want to call it. Because when you see what God's grace does in our life, you've got to respond. You can't just sit back and say, oh, Jesus Christ saved me from my sins. Oh, well. No. Oh, wow, is what it should be. And here's this radical response. Starting in verse 5 of Romans chapter 8, it says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature, they think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life, and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Never did obey God's law, never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature 
can never please God. Now, in those verses, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, we saw a word being used multiple times. In the translation I read from, it was the word sinful. Now, other translations read flesh. You know, if you go back to the Greek, you'll see it flesh. And what does that word mean? Well, yes, the fleshy parts of your body. But the biblical meaning means weak. It means human, not divine. It also means sinful, as we see it translated here in the passage I just read. So Paul uses this word repeatedly as he is showing us that he's speaking of two people. Not 10 categories, not 20 categories, but just two. Sinful, spiritual. Those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, those who do know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that's all he does. He tries to make it very simple. We know this, when we die, it's heaven or hell. There's, there's no multiple stages in heaven and hell. Faith is you know Jesus Christ as your Savior or you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Okay? That's what we learn when we read through the Bible, Scripture through Scripture. As we dig through and we try to understand what it says, we, we read this and it becomes clear. And it seems pretty simple, yet today many claim to be Christians, but their actions are confusing. And we look at them and we say, I thought they professed faith in Jesus Christ. I thought they were a Christian, but look what they're doing. Christians don't do that, right? So it gets confusing. Paul wants us to know. Listen, I want you to know. Paul's standing here today. Paul said, listen, I want you to know what it means to be sinful, and I want you to know what it means to be spiritual. I want you to know what it means to not live for Jesus Christ. I want you to know what it means to live for Jesus Christ. We're going to make this pretty cut and dry today. And then he would start in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. And he'd say this. Here's four things you need to know about the sinful person. First of all, they're thinking. They're thinking. Here's what a sinful person thinks. If you look at verse 5, it said this. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature do what? Think about sinful things. Now, it's not just referring to lustful or angry or deceitful or dishonest thoughts. It could also go the way of having conceited and proud thoughts. Look what I'm doing for God. Look at all the good things. You know, decision-making based on thinking, and because their thinking is set on sinful things, their decisions and their choices then lead to sinful action. Are you following me? Those of sinful nature are dominated by sinful thinking. Sinful thinking leads to sinful action. That's the first thing Paul said about the sinful person. Then he said this, their state is that of death. Now, verse 6 reads this, So letting your sinful nature control your mind, which we just talked about, leads to what? To death. Now, not just physical death, but spiritual death. Spiritual death is the most horrible death. It is total separation from God. When you are spiritually dead, you are unresponsive to God. Psalm 19.1. You maybe have seen this. Maybe like there's a picture of a mountain scene or, or a beach or something. Something beautiful in nature. And you might see this verse scripted on, on that same picture saying this. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. The psalmist, as he wrote this, is just saying, can you see how awesome God is? Everybody just picture right now the most beautiful 
scene of creation that you can think of. If you're a mountain person, you're picturing mountains right now. If you're a water person, you're picturing a sunset or a sunrise over a beach, okay? Or maybe you like the woods and you like maybe flowers and you got a botanical garden going on in your mind right now, okay? Has everybody got a picture of something? Something of God's incredible creation? You see it? Listen, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Paul even wrote this later. He said this, Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth. They've seen the sky. They see everything that God's made. They can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature. They have no excuse for not knowing God. When you look out and you see creation, you have to sit there and say, there is a God. He does exist. Look how mighty, how powerful, how creative He is. No excuse for not knowing God. Paul goes on to say, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship Him as God. They didn't give Him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, instead they became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds, animals, reptiles. Again, I ask you, how can you look at a sunrise, a sunset, a mountain, a flower budding and growing? Okay? How can you study photosynthesis, the functions of the human body, and proclaim there's no God? How can you say that? It is utter foolishness to look at all creation and say there is no God. There is a God. And it is these people who say, nope, there's, there's no God. That's who Paul's talking about, that sinful person. God is very evident, very clear, but yet they will not give any credit to God. People may use God's name, matter of fact. They might say, oh, the big man upstairs, or, well, those, you know, the big guy, or they might even just say God's name. And maybe they use other religious jargon. But they have no relationship with God. They've never confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because they have no relationship with God, things of godly nature don't make sense to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But people who aren't spiritual can't receive spiritual truth from God's Word. People who aren't spiritual, people that are in the sinful nature, can't understand God's Word because God's Spirit is not working through them. Only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. So Paul says this. First of all, the sinful person, their minds are thinking sinful things. Their state is that of being unresponsive to God. It's basically a state of death. And then this third thing, he says this. The one who is unsaved, they have a religion. Oh boy. But it's hostile to God. Look what it says, verse 7. For the sinful nature, this is Romans 8, 7, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law, never will. Here's the thing. The one who is unsaved, doesn't think about godly things, won't admit that there's a God, and will piece together their own religion. They, they might even have what I call a buffet religion. Okay? I don't know how many of you here like buffets. We're not going to take a showing of hands or anything like that, Okay. Uh, maybe you go to buffets and you really enjoy them. Some of you get grossed out by them, okay? Some of you are like, I can't wait to get to buffet because there's so much food, right? Uh, you might have potlucks. It's like when my family gets together, 
Um, just my immediate family, like I said, there's like 60 of them. It might as well be a buffet because everybody brings in all this food. There's all kinds of stuff. And I'm not going to share with what a lot of the kids do, but I will. But here's what happens. I will load up on meat and the veggies and all that kind of side stuff. And it's like, I just get, I get too much because there's just so much to choose from. And that looks good. And that looks good. And that looks good. Here's the problem with all that. All the stuff that looks good may not be healthy good for me. You know what I'm saying? I'll look at some of my kids' plates or I'll look at their cousins' plates. I won't throw them under the bus. I'll throw their cousins under the bus, though. And their plates are full of finger jello, cookies, pie, oh, and a piece of cheese, okay? And it's like, oh, I forgot, and a roll, okay? And I'm sitting there going, what? There's no veggies, there's no meat. But as a kid, you're like, they're looking at the smorgasbord and they're going, yes, desserts. And I mean, they're just feasting on that. It's like a buffet. You get what you want. Nobody's telling you what to take. You're not sitting down at the dinner table with your family and you've got three things or four things on the table and you pass and you take a little bit of it. You take what's been served to you because this is what mom says, this is what you need to have today, right? Buffet, it doesn't work that way. You just get whatever you want, right? I call it the buffet religion too because there are people out there that like, well, I like what this religion says, and I like what that religion says. I talked to a young lady in our youth group one time many years ago, many years ago, and I was like sort of confused because she would come, but I talked to her after youth group one night, and I was like, you know, you've been coming, but yet sometimes you look like you're really eager to learn, but other times you sort of like unchecked from everything that's going on. I said, what's going on? And she goes, well, I, I like what you have to say, and there's good things that you teach, but uh, I don't agree with everything because, see, I, I believe a little bit of this religion over here, and I believe a little bit of this religion right here, and I believe a little bit of this, but what I don't like sometimes that you say, I just check that out. That's the part I don't keep. I go, and it's like, honey, it don't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, I was reading devotional, and it sort of caught my mind, and I wanted to read this to you. Many ancient Greeks believed that life was determined by fate. Okay? There were three cold, unfeeling goddesses who spun each life's thread and cut it off at a whim. According to the Norse uh, mythology, the trickster god Loki toyed with mortals like a cat and a mouse. His name comes into English as Lucky, though it would be unlucky if he actually existed. Others believe life is governed by a soulless force like karma or the alignment of stars, not exactly encouraging. Next phrase I want you to hear. But Christians believe differently. Amen to that. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in karma. But yet, sometimes you'll hear Christians like, oh, that's karma coming back. Or, oh, I'm so lucky. Or, good luck today. That's not our faith. That's not our religion. But we do that. And we don't, we don't, under, maybe we don't even catch it. We don't even understand. We don't think about it. But those were actually Greek mythology, false religions. We have to be careful that we understand what we believe. We can't have that buffet religion like, well, I really don't like what God says about this, so I'll just not pay attention to that. But I like what that other religion has to say. We've got to be careful. Either we're all in God's word or we're not. And we need to be all in. Here's one more thing about the uh, person who, and let me actually, let me back up. The one who is unsaved then becomes hostile towards God, but he's also hostile towards godly people. And you may have encountered this with people who don't like you because of your faith. You remember the story of John the Baptist and Herod? For uh, in Mark chapter 6, 18, John the Baptist had been telling 
the wife of Herod, that what you're doing is wrong. It's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. He was doing something he wasn't supposed to do. So Herodias had this huge grudge against John and wanted to kill him. And then one day, the daughter danced before Herod. Herod was so pleased with her dance. He was so moved in the wrong way. They said, I'll give up to anything in my kingdom up to half. And, and she was like, what do I ask for? And she went to her mom. And her mom, who hated John the Baptist, said, I want his head, the head of John the Baptist. Came back to Herod. Uh, I want the head of John the Baptist. You could ask for anything. But see, when you are sinful and you are choosing your own way, you're going to make sinful actions. You're going to make sinful choices. You're hostile towards God and you're hostile towards God's people. That's the sinful person. And here's the final thing. The present condition of the unsaved person is verse 8. It says this, That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Because they won't think about godly things, they won't recognize God, and they're hostile towards God, there's no way they can please God. They may do good things, they may be good people, what they do is not necessarily pleasing to God, nor do those good things make them right with God. Good things don't get us into heaven. For by grace are you saved, through faith, not of works. Hashtag good things. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So all this to say here, what am I getting at? Why am I telling you about these four things of the unsaved people? Okay, Because Paul is trying to tell us, listen, either you're saved or you're not saved. There is no in-between. There is no category once you are saved. You're saved and you're living for him or you're not saved and you're not living for him. And you're hostile towards him. Your mind is in the gutter and you're just going the wrong direction. And as a Christian, we need to understand this. As a Christian, if I am saved, it's not just, well, I'm just saved and I'm good to go from here and I can just coast. No, you're saved with purpose and reason. You're saved to make an impact in the kingdom of God. You are saved because God wants to use you now to reach others for his kingdom. And Paul doesn't define the unsaved and just stop there. He defines those who are saved as well. He says, verse 5, But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, you think about things that please the Spirit. Our minds right now should be this right now. What can I do to please God? To serve him, to honor him. And not because I'm afraid of him, and not so that I'm on his good side, but because you want to do something that's just going to please him. If you are in love with somebody right now, okay, you're dating somebody, you just got married, you're still on your honeymoon, sort of. Seeing if you guys are alert over there, okay. Or you've been married for 20, 30, 40 years. If you really love that person, that spouse, you love a kid, you love a, a co-worker, like, man, I just love them. They're a great friend. I just, man, I couldn't think of a better friend. How do you treat them? Don't you look forward to doing things for them? Because you love them, you're just like, I want to do something special for them. If you really love God, you want to please Him. Our thoughts, our minds are focused on godly things. Paul says this, Philippians 2, verse 5, he says this. You must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Remember that verse? For that, you should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Here's the thing, though. We're like, oh, so my attitude, it's my attitude, my tude, right? Fat should reflect Jesus Christ. But we're not just talking about attitude like we're thinking. Like that kid has a bad attitude, right? But you look at the original Greek word, you look at that verse, you look at that very word, the word is actually means mind. Mind. To have an understanding or have the same opinion, to agree together, uh, to agree together to cherish the same views, to be harmonious in thinking. 
to strive or direct your mind towards something. So when Paul's saying, hey, let the very mind of Jesus Christ be in you, you're in harmony with Jesus Christ. You're thinking the same way he thinks. You have the same point of view. Our mind, our thoughts, our understanding should be in agreement with Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Because here's what I want you to hear, church, this morning. Okay, we heard about the sinful nature and the sinful man, but for the saved, for you in this room today that are saved, what do we do with this? Here's what we do. We get our minds like that of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? I'm glad you're all asking me right now. Thanks. That's a good question, right? Here's how we do it. Jesus' mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, right? The Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh. Jesus Christ dwelt among us. When he ascended in heaven, he sent his spirit. And his word is him. Every time you open up God's word, as I've shared with you before, as it says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. All scripture is inspired. Every time you open up God's word, it's like God breathes into you. You want the mind of Jesus Christ? You've got to open up God's Word. Church, I want to I want to challenge you something. In ancient Jewish culture, formal education began began at the age six. Do I have any six year olds in here? Anybody at six? Can you raise your okay? Raise your hand, nice and tall. Can would you mind standing up for me so everybody can see you? Now I want you to picture this, okay? Six years old, right? So if back in the time, the Jewish culture, this is what would happen: you would go to school, and you would learn the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's a lot of books there. You would memorize it. By the time you're 10 years old, you've got it memorized. And he walks out, and here's what you do. You show up, and they give you the slate, and you start writing the words. And then what your teacher does, he covers it with honey. And you lick the honey off the slate as you remember God's word. Today would be like Sour Patch Kids and Skittles. That would be awesome, right? Okay? You wonder why our children, thank you, you can have a seat. You wonder why our children's teachers give candy, right? Okay? I don't know if that's biblical or not. But anyway, Psalm 119 and 103 says, How sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Kids, I don't know about you, but that sounds good, doesn't it? It's like go to, you're going to school and you're candying it up. You're sweetening it up, right? You're sugaring it up. But you walk out of there four years later at age 10. Any 10-year-olds in here? Can you just raise your hand so everybody get a picture of a 10-year-old? Okay. You're right here in front, so I want to stand up. Okay. So now, four years later, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Is that crazy? Yeah, I thought so too. Thank you. Have a seat. I have enough problems remembering a couple of verses. They're remembering five books. Five books. And here's the thing. It wasn't, the goal wasn't to get through the Bible, but to get the Bible in you. And that should be our goal too, to get up daily, to read God's word. And I ask you this, I ask you this often. Are you reading God's word? Do you have a Bible plan? Do you have a reading plan? Again, it's not about just getting through the Bible on a yearly basis. It's God's getting into you through his word. Deuteronomy 17, 19 says, he must always keep that copy with him. Read it daily as long as he lives. That way he'll learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. Did you hear that? Now listen again. I want you to hear this. you got to hear this, okay? He must always keep that copy with him. Read it daily as long as he lives. That way he'll be able to learn to fear the Lord, his God, by obeying all of his commands. You know who, that, who it was that was doing this? It was every king of Israel. If you became in a political position as a king, you were writing down God's word daily, carrying it with you. 
learning. Could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine if our leaders did this today? I'm not just talking about our church leaders, our government leaders, our leaders in their jobs. Wherever you have a high position of authority, if every leader, especially, we'll say, you know, if you want to get political, but every leader carried God's word. And on a daily basis, they're reading it. I mean, they were required to make a copy of the law. So they're copying down word for word. What does God's word say? They're copying it down. They're memorizing it. They're reading it. They're living by it. My advice is this. For those of us in here who are saved, act like a king. Be royalty. Pick up God's word. Read it. Study it. Read through the Bible. Meditate on it. Pray it over it. Stop. Ask questions. I read a story about a baseball coach. I'm going to close with this story. This baseball coach and um, he actually had a real home plate. He put the home plate around his neck. And uh, this baseball clinic that he went to, and I've gone to a lot of clinics. I've spoken at a lot of clinics. Uh, OHS, uh, BCA, the Ohio High School Baseball Coaches Association. I've gone down there year after year. Steve Cheney's gone down with me a couple times. And, and you know, we set up a booth, and we're like, we're the FCA booth, so you got people are selling turf and baseball bats and all this kind of stuff. And then there's FCA. We're the, we're the Jesus booth, okay? So you see all these coaches walking by, and some of them might be actually chewing, or, or they've got a couple beers in their hand, or they're saying something. They come, they see us, and they divert, and they go on the other direction. We've got a big display, you know, and they know we're FCA. We're the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, you know. And so we've got the coach's Bible sitting right there. And anyway, we get to talk to a lot of coaches. It's pretty cool. But the last couple times I was there, they gave me the opportunity to speak. And so I had, had like a small room. It would be about half this size. And I got to speak to some coaches. Well, the, the last time I was down there, they're like, hey, we're going to give you the big room. Now, the big room is like where thousands of coaches meet. It's like, you know, the big opportunity, the big stage. It's like, whoa, because they got college coaches, high school coaches, you know, Hall of Famers coming in and talking. It's like, we get the stage? And then I saw where they put me on the schedule. You have to understand this. Coaches come in on the first day. They're pretty pumped and fired up. They're there, the first cube stands, and then there's lunch. And, well, not so many show around after lunch. Their little bellies are full. And they're a little tired. And, and they'll make a couple sessions. And then all oh, supper time, and then it's off to the bars or wherever else. And that evening session is like crickets chirping, Okay. You know what I'm saying? And then the next day, it's sort of the same way. When I looked on the schedule, like, wow, we get the big room. I'm, oh, I get the cricket chirping session. I get it. And it was. I mean, it was sort of spotty. There's various coaches out there. But here's, here's the story I want you to hear. It's a true story. It happened back in 1996. And this happened at a, uh, the coaches' clinic uh, out west. There's 4,000 baseball coaches showed up for this American baseball coaches' clinic. And the author who wrote this story, who shared his, his happened, and I'm just going to sort of read what he had to say, but he waited in line to register at the hotel staff, and he heard another veteran coaching, rumbling about the line, long line, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're looking through the speakers being scheduled to speak. And there's one name he kept hearing coming up in discussion around him. And his name was uh, John Scalonis, and I'll probably pronounce his last name wrong, but John Scalonis. And they thought, you know, I heard this guy say, man, this guy is worth every penny. Make sure you sit in his session. Not sure who he was. He was just glad to be there. But he went on, got to his room. He got to the big room early. And he was there. Nobody else was in there. Sound guys are still setting up. Everything's getting staged. It's being set. 
After a little bit, other coaches come in. By the time the first speaker introduced the first presentation, the College World Series winner, there was not one empty chair in the room. It was, it was full. Of course, as the day went on, like I told you, those sessions get a little bit more spotty and a little less full. Now, the coach figured, you know what? The next day goes, I'm going to go hear this John Scalonis guy talk or whatever, but if it's like anything like yesterday, there's not going to be anybody in that room when he talks because he's at the same time of the day when it gets really spotty. So he thought, well, I'm just going to take a long lunch break and I'll walk in probably five minutes later right on the dime and I'll be fine. I'll find a spot in the front row. Well, he showed up and there was not one chair open. People were standing around the edges. And he thought, this is when people won't show up and here they all are. All 4,000 coaches had showed up to hear this coach speak. Coach Scalonis. 78 years old, walks up to the front with his home plate, a heavy home plate strapped around his neck and starts talking. For 25 minutes, he's talking about baseball with this prop hanging around his neck. And Coach Scalonis sort of notices some snickering going on and people are sort of wondering, you know, like, does he know that he's got a plate around his neck? Did he break out of a hospital or something somewhere? What's going on with this guy? Is, is, does he need to go back to the, the home or something? And that's what the comments were around this guy. He said those were the comments people were making. I mean, this guy, what's he going? Is he, is he lost or what is he doing? So he laughed along with everybody around him. And then Coach John Sclone from the front said, yeah, you're probably thinking I'm a little loony right now. And that just sort of broke the ice. Everybody laughed. He goes, because I'm not... I am old, but I'm not crazy. And the reason I stand for you before you today is to share with all you baseball coaches what I've learned in my life, what I've learned about home plate in 78 years. And then he went on to say this. How many of you coach Little League Baseball? And he asked the coaches to raise their hands. The coaches raised their hands. He goes, how wide is the home plate in Little League Baseball and in T-ball? 17 inches. 17 inches, that's correct. How many of you out here coach Pony League, sort of the Babe Ruth League, that next league up? Hands went up. How wide is home plate in that division? 17 inches. High school coaches, raise your hand. High school coaches, raise your hand. How wide is home plate in high school baseball? 17 inches. College coaches, college coaches, raise your hand. College coaches, raise your hand. There's a lot of college coaches there. How wide is home plate in college baseball? Same answer. 17 inches. And he said this. You're right. All you coaches are right. Matter of fact, minor league baseball, pro baseball, 17 inches. From the time a child starts hitting a ball off of a tee to the time he's in the major leagues and he retires, this never changes. It's always 17 inches. 17 inches. And then he went on to say this. What they don't do in baseball, or he backs up and goes, what they do when a big leaguer can't throw a ball over 17 inches, what do they do with that big leaguer? They get rid of him, right? He can't throw a ball over that plate. They get rid of him. What they don't do is they don't say, oh, poor, poor uh, Jimmy, you can't hit a 17-inch target. We'll make it 19 inches for you. We'll widen it up just a little bit more so you can hit. Oh, you're still struggling with that? We'll make it 22 inches, maybe 25 inches. Because, Jimmy, we want you to be successful, so we're just going to keep widening the plate. They don't do that, do they? 
it only stays 17 inches. Then there's this pause. And he said this, coaches, what do you do when your best player shows up late at practice? When your team rules forbid facial hair and the guys show up unshaven? When one of your kids get caught drinking? Do we hold him accountable or do we change the rules for him to fit in? Do we widen home plate for that kid? The chuckles gradually faded as uh, 4,000 coaches got really quiet. Fog sort of lifted as the old coach's message began to unfold. He turned a plate toward himself. And he took out a Sharpie. And he drew something on the plate. He drew a picture as he turned the home plate upside down with doors and windows. He said, at home, coaches, at home we're struggling right now. He said, the problem in our homes, the problem with our marriages, the way we parent our kids, with our discipline, we, do we teach accountability to our kids? Do we hold them accountable for the rules? Or do we widen home plate with them so they don't feel so bad about themselves? And then he took the plate back, pulled out a Sharpie again, drew an American flag at the top, and he did this. He goes, in our schools, the quality of our education is going downhill fast. Teachers have been stripped of the tools they need to be successful, to educate and to discipline our children. Are we allowing them to widen our home plate? Where is that getting us? And then he placed a flag and he drew a cross on there. It's the same thing in the church. He goes this, and I'll quote what he said. If I'm lucky, you'll remember one thing from this old coach today. It's this. If we fail to hold ourselves to a higher standard, a standard of what we know to be right, if we fail to hold our spouses and our children to the same standards, if we're unwilling and unable to provide a consequence when they don't meet the standard, if our schools and our churches and our government fail to hold themselves accountable to those they serve, there's but one thing to look forward to. And with that, he turned the home plate backwards. Have you ever seen the back of a home plate? It's dark. It's black. If we fail to hold to the standards, there's darkness. What that coach said that day made me think of our standard. This is our 17 inches. I'm sorry if you don't like what's going on in the world, but the Bible will not go from 17 to 19 inches just to accommodate your feelings. When we look at what this world struggles with today, whether it's our fears of the morality of things that are going on in the world, and we say, oh, it's okay to do this. No, it's not. I'm sorry, it's not. 17 inches is 17 inches, and it does not change just because I want it to be right for me. There's a standard by which Christians live by. God's word is our home plate. It doesn't change. And just because we struggle to live by it doesn't mean that we have the ability or the right to change it. The saved person, the one who calls upon the name of the Lord, is a spirit-driven person who lives a spirit-driven life. And our minds must be like that of Christ. The Bible is our way of holding us accountable to daily living. So church, I want to encourage you as saved people, Pick up God's word and understand this is your home plate. 
This is your 17 inches of life. It doesn't change. We must live by it. And if you're not saved and you're in this room today, I want to encourage you, give your life to Jesus Christ. There is no better way. There is no better way. It's our choice to adhere to it, to listen to it, to live by it. I choose to live by it. Will I make a mistake every now and then? Absolutely. Just like a pitcher sometimes doesn't throw it across home plate and it goes out in the ball, sometimes it hits the batter. Okay? That will probably happen in my life. It will. It will happen in yours too. But I don't stop trying to cross home plate. Are you following me, church? Church, make sure you grab your Bibles on a daily basis. Make it understood. I want to live that spiritual life. I want to live that spirit-filled life. I don't want that sinful nature life. I want the spirit-filled life. I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to adhere to his standards. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for Paul, his, his concern that sometimes we get confused as to all the categories. Am I saved, not saved? If I'm saved, how saved am I? And, and how many levels are there to being an awesome Christian and follower of Christ? Paul made a pretty clear cut. This is what the unsaved person is like. This is what the saved person is like. And the saved person finds life and peace. So God, I think about this. And you said, don't worry about these things, but pray about everything. And the peace of God, which guards our heart. Peace of God. That's you. That's what I want. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I want your peace, but I also want your life so I can live today. And to live today, I need your word. And God, may you just breathe into me through your word. Lord, I pray as a church that we get excited about opening up God's word. What did did I learn today? How can I live better for you today, God? My mind is set on you, on your word. Lord, help us to do that as a church. And when we fall short, help us to get back up. And when we step outside that 17-inch box, help us remember, this is where I need to be. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your standards. Equip us, Lord, to be an awesome church, not because of a building or the people or whatever it may be, but because we're seeing lives impacted daily. We're a praying church. We're a Bible-reading church. We're a spirit-filled church that says, I want to live for you. That's our prayer. That's what we want to be, God. And all the glory goes to you, not to us, but to you. Thank you, Lord, again for your love. In that name we pray.